Welcome to Media Path, where I am Louise Blank. And I'm Fritz Coleman. What Fritz and I like to do is usher you through a library filled to the arched and skylit ceiling with books and movies and music. Occasionally, we will grab that sliding ladder and guide you up a few shelves to point out something we have found to be especially interesting, like, say, the entire career of Bill Schnee, a Grammy-winning music producer, engineer, and mix master who has worked with Barbra Streisand, Whitney Houston, The Beatles, and beyond, devoting his career to conducting the orchestras of studio tracks in the creation of the iconic music that we most cherish. So, Fritz, I'm going to go with my first pick here. I, uh, you ready I hope for you it? Will. It's a kind of a musical pick to uh, compliment Bill. It's a movie called Coda. Coda is not just a musical term defining the concluding passage of a piece or movement, it is also an acronym for Child of Deaf Adults. In the Apple Plus film bearing this name, 17 year old Ruby is a Coda. Her parents and her brother are deaf, while she is the only hearing member of their Gloucester, Massachusetts family. Ruby wakes up at 3 a.m. to work before school in her family fishing boat, but her secret passion is singing. No one in her family can hear her, and when she joins the school choir and expresses an interest in music, they resent and fear her pursuing a talent that they will be unable to share and experience with her. Additionally, they have grown accustomed and dependent upon her as a translator. This is a film that explores the richness and isolation of deaf culture through the eyes and ears of a hearing person. The director, Sean Hader, insisted upon and fought to hire deaf actors. The cast includes Marley Matlin, Troy Kotsur, and Daniel Durant. Ruby's choir crush is played by Irish actor Fridia Walsh-Pilo. British actor Amelia Jones is Ruby. She spent nine months studying American Sign Language and singing and operating a fishing trawler. Stock up on Kleenex. You will find the tear-inducing coda on Apple Plus. What's Marley play? I just I'm in love with her. I have been since Children of a Lesser God. She's absolutely adorable. She plays the mom. Oh. Yeah, she plays the mom, so, and it's beautiful. Wow, good suggestion. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm going to talk about Yellowstone, which is streaming now on. Uh, yeah, Kevin Costner, right? Yeah, I, I was late to this party, but all of my friends kept telling me about it. And so I said I had to get on. So Paramount did a Labor Day Yellowstone marathon that ended yesterday, and I dipped my toe in and stayed there until my skin shriveled up. I was there all weekend. <laughs> Were you in the bath? <laughs> with with bubbles to my <laughs> nipples. Anyway, uh, they're about to start their fourth season November 7th. It's the story of the Yellowstone Dutton Ranch near Bozeman, Montana. It's the largest contiguous ranch in the United States, fictionally. It's a drama built along the shared borders between a wealthy rancher and Indian reservation and land developers. It's kind of like Jerusalem, where you have all these goals and all these cultures and all these ethnicities colliding in one area. The patriarch of the family is John Dutton, played by Kevin Costner. He's the sixth generation head of the family in the ranch. He fights to defend his land against the modern forces closing in around him. It was created, co-created, written, produced, and directed by Taylor Sheridan. Taylor's an actor, and he had a great part on Sons of Anarchy and other notable things, and I am hooked. The photography is breathtaking. The writing is wonderful. Sheridan writes most of the episodes and directs most of them, although... I'm not steeped in cowboy culture myself. All the characters and scenarios seem so genuine and human. 
By the end of the weekend, I just wanted to live in a 10,000-square-foot log home, (laughs) ride to the horizon on a docile elderly horse that wouldn't throw me, and order around cowboy ranch hands that look like they were carved out of wood. This is just a wonderful present-day Western, and but really great engagement, great storylines and stuff. I'm, I'm hooked. I'll be, I'll be binging forever with this. Oh, I just kind of dipped into a little bit of the marathon, and I really had no idea. There are a lot of people. It's like one of those big casts with like lots of layered storylines and lots of really important themes about how we how we use the land that we live upon. Mm-hmm. So I think it's 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 a great piece, and I but I need to start at the beginning. I think so because I'm a little lost. To learn who all the Everyone's characters trying are. to. It's Shakespearean. They're all trying to overthrow yes, each other. It's everybody, <laughs> and they all end up dead at the end, just like Shakespeare. Okay, I all right, good to know. Yeah. Okay, so I love exploring books into movies. If I learn that a film is based on a book, I will often first read the book before enjoying the movie. The trick is to expect the film or the miniseries to be different because visual storytelling has its own requirements. My latest book into movie indulgence is Last Letter from Your Lover by Jojo Moyes. It's your typical tale of a woman who wakes up from a coma and cannot for the life of her remember with whom she is having a torrid affair. (laughs) It's London in the early 60s. Her husband is a rich snoot. And as she struggles to regain her memory, she begins to discover these poetically passionate letters signed simply B. Cut forward to 2003, where a young journalist with her own romantic entanglements finds these letters hidden deep in her newspaper's archives. Romance and mystery ensue. I just loved it. The book has more depth and layers, so I can highly recommend that you enjoy both. The film stars Felicity Jones, Shalene Woodley, and Callum Turner. You will find it on Netflix. Two good suggestions today. You're welcome. Are you ready for our fascinating guest i am he's he's joining us via he's had like five careers i can't believe the amount of work this man has done this guy is just good at things that he applies himself to he's just (laughs) like i think he's one of those guys who just understands where his strengths are and he just goes full steam ahead bill shanae is an internationally renowned producer engineer and mix master he has received over 125 gold and platinum records while creating more than 50 top 20 singles for everyone from Barbara Streisand to the Jacksons, from Rod Stewart to Steely Dan, and from Whitney Houston to Dire Straits. Bill is a guy who over the years has often been told, you should write a book. And so he did. In Chairman at the Board, Bill lovingly shares in humorous detail his magical musical journey behind the closed doors of many recording sessions with a host of the greatest musical artists from the last 50 years. I made a list here. I don't know if we're going to get our uh, work away all the way through it, but it, it includes Barbara Streisand, Carly Simon, Ringo Starr, all of the Beatles, actually, Art Garfunkel, Pornish Sisters, Huey Lewis, Boskag, Chicago. The list goes on and on. We're going to put it all in our show notes. But Bill, welcome to Media Path. So nice to Thank have you, you Bill. I love your backdrop. If you're only listening to this, go home and pull it up on, on YouTube. He's got a lot of like, what would you call this, like archival sheet music? The, the, yeah, the songbook, the songbook sheet music that was always, you know, in the 30s and 40s that were always so beautifully done. The That's artwork. when you had to teach one of your kids to play the piano or there was no exactly. music. <laughs> Well, Bill, you're in Nashville now because most of the recording industry is in Nashville, but you spent your halcyon years in the 70s and 80s out here when the L.A. session music scene was at its peak, and you have such great stories about yeah. those times. Sorry, that's actually the reason I wrote a book. Uh, people had been telling me that, you know, you should write a book. you got such great stories, and I love telling stories. And uh, But it always seemed too self-serving. It would be, I did this, then I did that, then I did this, then I did that. And it wasn't until a uh, producer of a uh, Brazilian artist that uh, I was working with took me to dinner and 
the usual question after 20 minutes of me telling stories, why don't you write a book? And I said, yeah, I've thought about it. And he said, you know, the, the music business, as we know, it was born in the 50s. It grew up in the 60s and it really peaked in the 70s going into the 80s. It was a very short time, a very iconic time, and it'll never be repeated again. And you were there. And it was the you were there that took it away from me from doing I did this, then I did that. I realized I could tell stories that happened to other people, fun stories or whatever that I had heard while, I, you know, in my travels. So no, as an artist, it's almost your obligation to do an oral history if you have great moments to share. Plus the whole, and we're going to talk about this, I'm sure, the whole recording industry has changed so much and become singular and, you know, band-based and not studio-based. So you're reflecting back on a time that may be gone forever, and they may be the best of times that you're remembering in your book. Many people think that it was, that's for sure. And one of the things that you, you talk about is that, you know, this just the difference in feel to analog from analog to digital, that some people romanticize analog, and then you point out that, you know, it wasn't, it's just that we got used to it. There were, there were definitely problems there's problems in all forms of recording what we think we're hearing live with our ears. But initially, the idea was to just record whatever you were hearing, put a band in a room and get them get them recorded. And then it became, oh, wow, we could make them sound even better than they sound. So so talk about the arc of, of recorded music history. Okay. I find it fascinating. Well, yeah. First of all, with regard to the analog digital thing, um, the, the, the truth of the matter is analog tape has a sound. It adds something to what, what, what you're recording. It was never a mirror. Uh, it was the only thing we had, and that was ever since we got it from the Germans in the late 40s, that was the sound of music, because that's all you ever heard was something that had gone on analog tape, initially one time on tape, and after multi-track, two times on tape. So it always had that sound. Digital came through, which is much more of a mirror, but the early digital with lower sampling rates and bit rates, uh, we went to it a little too early. Uh, and that was full of problems in itself. But today, what we have with the high sampling and bit rates, we have the ability to, for the first time, actually really capture exactly what you hear in the control room when a band is playing on the other side of the glass. You strike and, me as uh, someone who never really resisted all these technological advancements. You sort of embrace them and said, all right, let's let me see where we're going and what I can do with it. Well, yeah, I realized early on a couple of things. One, that if I was going to have a long career, and I guess it's safe now after 52 years <laughs> to say I've had a long career and still going, that I was going to have to protect my hearing because uh, that's important. Of course, at the time, I didn't realize that, that computers would come in and eyesight would be almost more important than ears. <laughs> but, uh, that's really that's interesting. <laughs> what an interesting comment. Yeah, it is. And, and it's really interesting also because when it, was, when it wasn't on a computer, you were all you when you were in the control room, all you did was look out at the musicians and think about the music. And now, you know, we find ourselves staring at the computer screen, you know, during the whole thing and manipulating and so on. Uh, but the other thing you mentioned, though, uh, uh, has to do with multitrack, because when the uh, when that came in, that was a big change. You, you mentioned in your book that you had favorite boards, whether they be digital or analog what was your favorite studio to work in? What was your favorite board over time? Did you have one? Well, what I, I, what I found out very early on in my career was that the, the consoles that I had, the boards, consoles that I liked the best were all homemade. They weren't made by a manufacturer. 
And in large part, I figured out that the main reason for that is that they're usually very, very simple. And uh, I had learned fairly early on that in analog electronics, less is more. The less you go through, the purer the sound. So that's why what I attributed that to. And then as a result, when I built my studio in 1980, uh, we built the console ourselves also. And it was, uh, again, very, very simple. I never understood why there would be these, a lot of these big English consoles. They have features that you use 5% of the time, but you're going through their electronics 100% of the time, that kind of thing. So our console wasn't quite as versatile as those meaning you might have to patch a few things as opposed to touch a button. But the, uh, the idea of having the best, uh, simplest electronic path was very important to me. Did you, I don't know if you saw the documentary that Dave Grohl sort of spearheaded about sure. Sun City Sound. And the whole thing, the whole arc of it is about his love for this board. And they did, you know, the Fleetwood Mac albums in there and Paul McCartney did a solo album there. And he just said that this board had a soul and he ended up buying that board and putting it in his home. It was really, it was very touching. It was interesting, the relationship between he and his mixing console. Yeah. And those old Neves are, are, are very good consoles, full of character. Mm -hmm. uh, so... He was right about that. You know, I, I don't think he paid quite enough attention to the room itself because the acoustics in the, in the room, uh, the room itself was a very, very good room, mm -hmm. which, you know, it adds a lot to the sound as well. Right. How did you find the process of creating a book as compared to the process of creating a, a song? Was it as rewarding? Well, uh, good you know, over the years, I, I got very... <laughs> creating a song is kind of easy in a way, you know, after a while, uh, the book was, uh, just a different thing. Uh, totally. Um, I don't know that I'm, I'm not a writer per se. Uh, I just started the book, you know, by telling the stories and that's really all I did. So it really is my personality and my voice. And funny enough, the audiobook just came out, which is really my voice. That was the hard thing, if you want to know the truth. Writing the book was kind of fun, recounting all the stories and thinking about, you know, uh, going back in time and reliving some of the stuff in my mind. But the, trying to read the book, ugh, I didn't enjoy that at all. Well, you must have kept really good calendars because you seem to really remember everything that you had done in, in a specific order. No, I... Uh, as I've said, I couldn't have written a book without the internet. Uh, the internet was really helpful to me for looking up things and then it would spark my memory and it would all come back uh, kind of thing. Uh, however, there, as you may have never known this, but actually everything on the internet isn't true. And <laughs> what? Well, oh Bill. my God, you're going to bring this podcast to a screeching halt. I have to cancel the show. <laughs> <laughs> but if, for instance, my, one of my, there were several, that you know like where the credits are this is cracks me up where the, there's a couple of websites that have credits for people in uh the, in the music industry and when i started writing the album uh the first album i did with barbara streisand was on there which i actually worked on and today about two years ago it it left so evidently now i didn't work on it i don't know how that happens wow. uh -oh. but the funniest the funniest one with the credits to me was the Jacksons. I did a. Uh, I was on the road and did a live album with the Jacksons. Uh, I actually traveled on the bus. I'll bet you want to read that book now. And um, I read this story, so it's fascinating. What was and, up with uh, Tito? 
<laughs> and so uh, when I was checking dates and stuff, I, uh, I looked, they have, somebody had posted the tour schedule. And I know for a fact, because I, I, after we finished the recording in the Northeast, I flew to Nashville to go in a, into a studio with the boys to start picking the takes. We had recorded like six uh, different shows and to, to pick the take of each song, to get the very best take of each song. And I, uh, my friend that lives in Nashville uh, got me a studio and we went and did that. And on this list of the tour, it doesn't show that they ever played Nashville, so. Oh, mystery. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't want to get too far ahead. I want to lay the base coat for your amazing career. And in the preface of your book, you've got a really gorgeous description of the spiritual aspect of art. And, and it, it could be beyond music. It could be any type of art. That art and music are God-inspired gifts. And a blank tape is like a blank canvas. And you treat both with so much dignity. To talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's that's something that, uh, uh, that a, a second engineer first told me. When, uh, he, you know, he was uh, one of the guys that I trained. And we were putting, it was analog back then. This was early 80s. And put a, he was putting a tape on the machine to get blank tape to get started. And he said, you know, this is like a blank canvas, isn't it? And that got me thinking. And then uh, so to, to the thought that I came up with there where, yep, it's a blank canvas where in a little while, a bunch of creative people are going to pool their individual talents uh, going for one common goal. And we're going to come up with something that's going to live on uh, virtually forever. It's quite quite an interesting and wonderful thought to me no it's it was beautiful it was a great way to start your book go ahead Weezy. i thought maybe you could tell the story of the the ringo album i think it's ringo's first solo album right because kind of one after another you in, you encounter sequentially all beatles and yeah. you're a young like 23 year old kid yeah uh, and you I thought had, that uh, was going to be a big Beatle reunion you were going to be there it, it almost was i know it, was it almost was yeah that's the thing so I had uh, um, I did a brief stint recording and producing uh, at CBS, Columbia Records, and uh, that's where I met Richard Perry, who was producing Barbara Streisand at the time. And he uh, he had gone to England to do uh, an album with Harry Nielsen, and Harry is very good friends with Ringo, was very good friends with Ringo, and uh, that's how Richard met Ringo. And so a couple of years later, uh, we did a Carly Simon album, the no secrets album with your sylvain on it together i mixed that and then he called me and said that he was going to do an album with ringo and uh, it should be very exciting and indeed it was so i mean i remember in the sunday night before we started monday morning going in to do the setup place the microphones and whatnot and i walked in and here's a flight case that for the drums it says ringo star the beatles <laughs> and then i go into the control into the studio and there's a uh, the drum set and it may not have been the drum set that he used on the Beatle records but it was still Ringo's drum set <laughs> and uh, as you point out I was quite young and so it was quite something so we got started uh, on the Monday and Tuesday and I think on uh, Wednesday uh, the quiet Beatle George popped over from England who actually may have been known as the quiet Beatle but that was probably because he was always around Lennon and McCartney who could get a word or a melody in edgewise uh, <laughs> but he uh, he was anything but quiet and uh he heard what we had we'd cut a couple of tracks and he liked what we had done and he played on them and then he brought a song uh to the table that he had actually produced in england 
called Photograph. And uh, the song is about the, the singer is singing about uh, his lost love and all he has is this photograph to remember her by. And he had cut it in a very forlorn kind of way going with the with the lyrics. Uh, and it was decided that we should redo it. So we redid that with the kind of the Phil Spector wall of sound uh, treatment. And uh, I think that was the first and biggest single from that album. Uh, that wasn't Ringo's first album. He had done uh, he had done an album in England b b prior to that. But it's really the big the first big, big one. Anyway, then at the end of the week, Richard said, uh, uh, oh, by the way, um, on on Monday, John Lennon's coming. He has a song for Ringo also. And I, I took account and said, that means we're going to have three Beatles playing together <laughs> in a room. And he said, you got it. And that was the first and last time that three Beatles would ever play in the room together since they had broken up three years earlier. And the, the most amazing thing is, uh, see, I look at it that all of the Beatles basically said, you know, they knew their solo careers were going to do okay. Uh, but Ringo, not being the songwriter that the three of them were, they all kind of decided to give him a leg up. And so Paul had written a song, Paul and Linda, McCartney at the time had written written a song for Ringo as well. Unfortunately, he had had a drug bust here in the United States and he couldn't come into the, to, to the States. But who knows that if that wasn't the case, that he might have come over and come into the into the room. We might wow. have had a real Beatle reunion. And I think uh, really the, the one of the interesting aspects of that story, the Ringo story, was how the ions changed in the room when John Lennon went in there <laughs> and how Ringo and George got quiet. They were vivacious and funny and joking around, but the minute John came in, it must have been, I, I, all I can think of is that must have been the vibe and all Beatles recording albums because he was like one of the primary creators of all the stuff. When they walked in there, suddenly everybody deferred to John. John's opinion is what mattered. Uh, and it was Ringo's album, but he still deferred to Johnny. I just thought that was so fascinating. It was yeah. the power, the power structure of the Beatles. Yeah, I I'm sure that when they started, it was uh, a lot more of all for one and one for all. But as the success came and so on, this is my guess on the situation. Lennon and McCartney, who obviously were the main writers. In fact, it's quite interesting that George didn't really come into his own as a as a songwriter until the Beatles broke up. But um, the the that them being the main songwriters and especially John probably because he was a very forceful object. I can tell you that uh, he was uh, it was amazing because, as you said, uh, Ringo had been Ringo, just jovial and, you know, the life of the party. And uh, the not so quiet Beatle had been right there talking and very articulate and everything. But when John came in and of course, think about it, this was the first time the three of them had been together, let alone in the recording situation back to where they had done all those incredible records for the first time. So, uh, you know, I think, that, you know, there was nothing to do but to just freeze and let John take the show, and he, which he was very happy to do. It was obvious very, very quickly that that he was going to run the show and that when we when he was happy, we were done, that kind of thing. What a moment to be there. Yeah, I think I think it speaks to the affection that they all had for Ringo even after things broke up. And I also want to talk about maybe a dynamic that has to do with um, age when people are under the age of 21, say, you know, George was a few years younger, so there's a deference. And then you find the same thing with the Bee Gees, you know, with Barry and, and the twins. And now now when they're 
all over 25, there's either a respect or a history or a pattern or a resentment, you know, yeah. that you were never the one that was calling the shots. And that the, and when, once you've given birth to hits, you're the co-parents of those records forever. And you have to figure out how to negotiate those relationships. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. Speaking of that, I, I know that Barry uh, had, I can't remember which one or uh, which brother it was, but uh, one of them kind of took him on as time went on. They had a little bit of a tumultuous relationship in the studio. Yeah, it was Robin. He, yeah. And more, and and then, you know, Morris was always the peacemaker. And when Morris died, I think it was just going to be difficult for Barry and Robin to yeah. get him on. I don't think they I, ever I, I actually, I, I mixed a, a Robin album that Morris produced. Ah. And I, I also mixed a Barry Gibbs solo album that, unfortunately never came out he recycled the songs and put them in a movie but those guys are just fountains of, of oh yeah of just incredible songwriters yeah you, you have um a great comparison with what the difference is between a good song and a good record <laughs> I, I i can't help but chuckle because my wife who loves music but is not in the profession in any way uh, uh would always say this is a great record and it was really a, it, I mean, a great, uh, this is a great song, I'm sorry. And I would tell her, you know, actually, it's not a great song. Uh, to me, a great song is you play it on the guitar, you play it on the piano, and it sits for itself. That's, to me, what, a, what a, shows what a great song is. As production became more prominent, has become more prominent with the beginning uh, with uh, multi-track and everything that we can now do, you know, the beginning of multi-track, by the way, when we went from recording everything live in the studio uh, in the 40s and 50, early 50s and whatnot to the ability to put down a basic piece of the of the finished product and then add to it and add to it and then do vocals and vocals. And this made the control room become a part of the, the studio, uh, a part of the record making process, much more than just capturing the performance. Is it the guys like you who did really well? were the guys that actually were musicians. So you knew how to play all those tracks like they were an instrument. Yeah, and and uh, that, that, that's a, that was a learning process for everybody. That's so I, I want to ask you about uh, Boz Gags and, and Breakdown. And that when, cause you talk about the, like the doubled Tom role and do people come up to you and ask you how you got certain sounds like that they're just confounded by and they've tried to recreate? Yeah, engineering types will do that. Yeah, that, that's kind of the unfortunate thing, by the way, about the book that maybe I should say this for your, your audience, because you probably don't have as many music professionals. Uh, a lot of the interviews I've done have been for th those types of people. And I, I knew when I wrote the book, I'm going to be disappointing those people because they expected me to, to give tricks and, you know, secrets or whatever, whatever, like you're talking about. And as I said in the intro of the book, I wrote this book for anyone like me that loves music and records, but hasn't been as fortunate to go behind the curtain. So that's that. But um, yes, the, you know, engineering types will say, oh, I love that. Uh, how did you do that? And yeah, I, I don't believe in secrets, really. You know, I, it's, I just, whatever works, works. You um, have had such an expansive career. And you were at the beginning and the end, uh, beginning and end albums, two iconic bands that were, I think, America's first introduction to a jazz rock fusion. You did one of the early Blood, Sweat, and Tears albums. 
I don't know if you did the one with David Clayton Thomas or the one previous to that or just after, but it didn't matter because the musicians were all spectacular. But it was America's first exposure to that, the first time it got airplay. Then, flash forward, you did Asia, which is one of the great albums of all time by Steely Dan, and it was the same thing. It was a great fusion of jazz and rock. And Do you have any comment about those two connections in your life? Mostly, you know, the funny one, Steely Dan, what I wrote in the book is that I remember distinctly every day taking a cassette of what we had done, popping it in the car on my way home, and I would think, what in the world is this? It's not exactly pop. It's not exactly jazz. It's jazzy sometimes. It's poppy sometimes. It's even bluesy sometimes. But uh, what is it? And I'll... I don't I to this day don't know what it is, except it's incredible what what they came up with. And, you know, was just incredible music. But obviously with the heavy jazz uh, influence in it, but uh, enough to keep all the pop pop people very happy as well. A couple of weeks ago uh, on this show, one of my um, recommendations to view was the I don't know if you saw this was the classic album series on PBS where they did that, where they had Don and Walter together and they parsed this album and they mixed the tracks in and out. I don't know if you saw that, but what was really interesting about it is that was a complicated uh, session, wasn't it? Because they had all kinds of session players coming in and out and they would trade in somebody and they wouldn't like them and they'd trade it out like the drummer, that whole thing and you helped to hire the the drummer Steve and uh, and it turns out I, I mean they were very picky about what they liked so it was not a simple process putting that album on tape right well when Gary Katz their their producer called me and asked if I would like to do the next Steely Dan album and I said let me think about it okay uh, yeah because I'd already been a fan and was very happy to do it uh, and uh, he said now I'm going to warn you it's going to be a revolving door of drummers meaning we're going to you're going to be getting a new drum sound every two or three days. And I said that's fine, whatever. And so indeed we did have the aforementioned revolving door of, of drummers. And uh you know it's quite interesting because that album was the first and uh was the first and only in one way where they used all studio musicians. I mean that uh, they had used some studio musicians in the past. In fact, my good friends, uh, Michael Mardian, uh, would he, he and Jeff Picaro would told me about the maniacal ways that they they went through in coming up with the records they played on the previous records. And so I was a little concerned about that because I don't really love that kind of microscopic work in the studio. I'm much more of a, you know, shoot from the hip creative creativity for me comes when things are moving quick and just jump from one thing to the next. Um, but it, it <clears throat> excuse me, it wasn't like that at all. They came in every day with a piano bass demo that they had done at home, I assume. And sometimes it had a la-la kind of voice, uh, you know, uh, uh, vocal on it, showing where the melody was going to go. Sometimes it didn't. And uh, the great guitarist, Larry Carlton, had been given those demos, and he had made the chord charts that went with them so that we knew where to start. Uh, and it, they were very, unlike what I had heard in the past, uh, yes, we did change musicians, but the, the sessions were all very uh, dignified. In other words, we started at two o'clock. We never went late into the night. Um, and, and, and it was very relaxed. It was a no drug zone, at least the basic tracks were. And uh, it, it, it was just, it, it was, 
you know, what can I say? The album lives on and it's one of the most magical times mm -hmm. uh, that I've ever been in a studio with musicians. It's just day after day. It was just hard to believe. Wow. Well, I have a question that you may not know the answer to, but I've never asked anyone this question because I do not know either Mark Knopfler uh, nor Eric Clapton. But in the Princess Bride theme, it seems to me that it's the same melody as a song on an Eric Clapton album called Mother Mary. Has anyone else noticed this? It happened before the internet, so I wasn't able to Google it. I know not of what you speak, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, listen to both, and then we'll talk. Because okay. they're friends, and so it's more than whatever is he's, he's so fine and my sweet lord. It's more than that, Bill. I mean, it's really a duplicate melodic. Oh, really? Yeah. So, well, let's move on because you didn't know the answer to that. Um, talk about the day you recorded Whitney Houston live singing uh, I Will Always Love You because I did not know that that was live. I mean, we've seen the movie and it just knocks you out of your seat. But yeah. talk about that day. Okay. Well, in that movie, obviously, she plays a, a, a music star and all the concert scenes are really records, most of which David Foster produced, that she would lip sync in the movie. Well, knowing what the last scene was going to be, she had gone to the producers and said, I don't want to lip sync that. It's the, my, the camera's going to be right in my face, uh, you know, and whatnot, and you'll know that I'm lip syncing, so I want, to, I want to record it while we do the scene. So David Foster called me and said, One, get a recording truck and meet me at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami, and that's where we're going to shoot the last scene. And yes, in the hotel, in a multi-purpose room that had a small, relatively small stage, it doesn't come off that way with movie magic in the movie, of course. But um, uh, the, the band was well rehearsed on the song. David had done a demo of it and the band, her road band had learned it. And uh, the most interesting part to me was that uh, when we started doing it, uh, she was actually nervous. Now, at that point in her career, she had sung in front of, you know, tons of 20,000 seaters and a couple of hundred thousand seaters uh, concerts. And yet she was it was obvious she was nervous in this little dark room with, a, a, a you know, a film crew of about 30, 40 people. But uh, she, you know, after about the third take, uh, they, they took a break. And actually, uh, the star, Kevin Costner, came in the recording truck with me. And uh, I remember he he turned to me and he said, she's going to get it. And I said, I, I'm sure she will. And uh, and when that that next take happened, when she hit that and die at the end, uh, I'm sure mine was not the only hair on the back of the neck oh, and man. arms that went straight yeah, up. It's a, it's a modulation, too, right? It was just yeah, it was just a moment to behold. You guys time. know when you have hits or have an instinct about it, but that must have been one where you said, oh, my God, just get out of the way because this this song is going <laughs> to be the end right here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then just as as would happen, as you can imagine, I mean, it was absolute magic. And as would happen, the director said, that was incredible. Let's just do one more for protection. <laughs> that sounds fairly typical. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we we touched upon the Beatles, but I thought maybe you could go back and talk about George Harrison's castle because you had some interesting adventures there. Yeah. Um, when we went to England to record Paul and Linda's song, and we uh, had to uh, we had the, the, the weekend off we, or, or Sunday at least off. And George had come back to England with us as well. 
And he, he said, you know, why don't you, you and Richard come to the house, <laughs> the house for, uh, for dinner on Sunday. So we uh, drove there and pulled up. Uh, we got, he got a car for us to go and we pulled up to the gatehouse, the gatehouse, which, it, you know, it, <laughs> anyone in the right mind would love to live in the gatehouse. <laughs> and then we drove up further. And here is this absolute castle with a funny enough, a skull and crossbones flag flying over the <laughs> castle. And uh, the, the house is just, you know, unbelievable. And uh, I, I went into the living room and George was very gracious and Patty. And uh, he, he pointed down at the lake and said, you know, why don't you maybe you want to take a walk down to the lake before dinner, which I did. And, uh, you know, which, you know, was a 10 minute walk to the lake. Uh, the grounds were just huge and spe spectacular. And he, he pointed, he told me how he had, uh, the place had gone into terrible disrepair, fallen into terrible disrepair. And so he had to, had spent a lot of time re restoring it and was, it still wasn't done. In fact, he took me to the, what would become the recording studio. It was the bones of it. And it was, I think it was actually working, but it wasn't finished, uh, where he would go on to record a lot of music in the following, in the years to come. But uh, Patty, uh, he and Patty were vegetarians and uh, uh, at the time I was eating meat, I haven't eaten red meat since 1979, but at the time I couldn't believe that, um, you know, that just sounded weird to me that we're not going to have any meat. But I'm telling you, uh, the, the meal that she prepared, I remember very distinctly thinking, wow, I, I would never care about meat again if I could eat a meal like this every time. She was a great cook. And after dinner, went into the living room, which was the size of a ballroom. They had done a very smart thing and just taken a, a one big section of it and put in a couple of couches and several chairs, a big, you know, oriental rug and whatnot. And this was only in about a, a fourth, maybe a fourth to a third of this huge room. Wow. Uh, but to make it feel cozy as yeah. opposed to feeling like you were in a ballroom. And, uh, and several uh, rock luminaries started showing up. And at one point, one of them uh, said to George, George, you want to go in the, in the uh, underground? And uh, he said, sure. And I'm going, what in the world is he talking about? And so we went and he gave each of us a uh, torch and we went into the catacombs. Oh Evidently, the guy that built the house was some kind of a nut and had built this huge, and I mean huge, labyrinth of tunnels underneath the lawn that... Uh, I don't know how big it was. I do know that when we went in, when we came out, we were we were so far from where we had gone in, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> that's and how you escape from was, marauding Huns. You that's go right. I'm sorry? Yep. That's how you escape from marauding tribes, I guess. That's where you went for the London Blitz or something. You went down there. Yeah. Well, no, this, what, what, what year was this castle built, Bill? Early 1800s, oh, I wow. think. Yeah. Yes, uh, go ahead. And uh, so it's just, you know, it's this labyrinth. And of course, what the what the guys all found quite fun was to scare each other. So they would, you know, you'd hide and and then you'd you come around a corner and one of them would jump out at you and whatnot. And it was very effective, although the most effective was when I was I, I, most of them had gone away. And I'm not really, really claustrophobic, but I was that night. I mean, I couldn't <laughs> wait to get out of there. And and I remember making one turn and there was a full life full-size skeleton that George had put there just oh my God. for that purpose. And uh, uh, I think that's when my gray hair started. <laughs> it's proceeded quite nicely over the years, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's looking nice. 
anyway, it was a very fun night. Wow. You, you, back to the No Secrets album. Um, Mick Jagger did some background vocals on that album. Was that an accident? Was it like a drop-by kind of a thing, or how did that happen? Yeah, yeah. It was actually that... Uh, now, I only mixed it. The whole album was recorded in England, and uh, Richard just brought it back t- for me to mix. But um, what I was told was that Harry Nielsen was there uh, and starting to do the... They were thinking about doing the backgrounds on You're So Vain, and Mick happened to call the studio and uh, I don't know who answered, Richard, I guess, and said, you know, why don't you come around? We're just, you know, doing backgrounds. And he came around and Harry, it was Harry's idea. He said he should do the backgrounds. And uh, it's it's kind of funny because a lot of people don't realize that until, you know, I, I never knew that until I read you... your book. I never knew that was the case. There's so but much now, folklore about that song. I didn't know that was him. Yeah. But now when you listen to it, you're going to know. That's what I'm saying. Now that you listen to it, you're going to know instantly. Oh, of course, that's Mick Jagger. <laughs> oh, that's He's got so such cool. an identifiable voice. It, of course, it's him. Now, you reminded me that the uh, You Don't Bring Me Flowers duet began when disc jockeys started putting together edits of Barbara Streisand and Neil Diamond. Were they in the same key? Uh, I I don't really remember. I I almost think they'd have to be, but I, uh, because I don't know if the technology was out to, to change the key and keep the tempo back then in the seventies. But yeah, it started with that. Barbara had recorded the song and uh, I recorded an album with Neil and he recorded the song and then a, a disc jockey in the Midwest uh, took the two versions and kind of cut them together. So it, it was a form of a duet. They didn't sing over each other, with each other, I should say, but they traded off lines and so on. And Columbia Records uh, said, hey, that's a good idea. So they got uh, Bob Gaudio, who had uh, produced Neil's record, to go in uh, with Neil and Barbara and make the duet. And uh, the thing the thing I love uh, uh, telling about that is that on the recording console, where all of the faders are uh, for the different instruments, we put a piece of tape at the bottom, which basically is to remind us, this is the violins, this is the violas, this is the, you know, whatever this. And so uh, when, it, when it came to the two of them, there was Neil and I wrote Babs. Uh, <laughs> and um, when she came to... When she came to hear the uh, mix, I put her in my chair. And before I started it, she looked down and she went, Babs. <laughs> and I went, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> and she was cool with it? And uh, Oh, yeah. She's she's great. She's got a great sense of humor and whatnot. And, and a big foodie. I couldn't, you know, just uh, wonderful. That's from, uh, Fritz may know that uh, Gary Owens, uh, that's what, when he was on the radio, that's what he used to say. He'd play a Streisand record. Uh, and he'd say, that was Babs, as she is so Well, Wheezy and I were both close friends, and Wheezy even more uh, with Gary. He was a dear friend and one of the loveliest people in the business ever. We love Gary. Wow. Gary called her Babs? Yeah, on the radio. That's what how he would uh, announce her. <laughs> Hello, Babs. <laughs> so Richard Podolor, who was uh, pivotal in your experience, was the guy that threw you some mixes for Three Dog Night, which is... One of my favorite bands of all time, and I think one of the great unsung uh, harmony groups. And you said, and I never thought of it this way, but it's true, it's the only band you ever worked with that had three lead singers. Yeah, Talk about Three Dog Night. Yeah, it was a great, uh, they were a fabulous group, really. 
Yeah. Okay. So a little bit of backstory. It's how I got in the business. My parents moved to Los Angeles my senior year of high school. I met some guys that were starting a band. Uh, I'm a jack of all and really a master of none, but keyboard was my main instrument. And so I said, guys, do you think, how do you think an organ would fit in? And they said, let's try it. It worked great. So we started a little band and we played around and did things that high school bands do. And we uh, at school, we were about to graduate. We went into a, a demo kind of studio and put down, we wrote songs. So we put down three of our best songs. And one of the guys in the band, his mother knew someone who knew someone who maybe even knew someone that was in the record business. And uh, that was Gary Usher. Gary was a friend with the Wilson family, the Beach Boy Wilson family. He actually wanted to be a Beach Boy, but it didn't happen. Although he did write 409 and In My Room with Brian Wilson, two of the big Beach Boy hits. Anyway, so he he signed us. He had just made a production deal with Decca and he signed us to Decca Records. And we went in the studio and he brought in Richie Podler as a guitarist to play, uh, add to our group. And we we saw right away, you know, we were, we just graduated high school. We're, you know, uh, but this guy was an incredible musician. And uh, as it turns out, also an incredible engineer and a credible producer, but which he hadn't quite shown all of that yet. Uh, but uh, so we did four songs and uh, the way it worked back then, you were signed for four songs. If you had a hit, you ran in and did six more. If you didn't buy baby. And so buy baby came <laughs> and I went to Podler's studio and told him the sad news. And he said, oh, well, here, go see this guy, Mike Curb. He's going to go places. I can get you a record deal with him. (laughs) So off I went to 9000 Building on Sunset to Sidewalk Productions to meet Mike Curb, and uh, which his office consisted of he and his sister, Carol. And indeed, he did sign us to another record deal with Richie Podler to produce us. So when we went in the studio with Richie, we put down the first track. When I came in the control room to hear it back and looked up at the speakers, it was a real aha moment. I, we had recorded at Capitol and Western for DECA, two of the best studios to this day in Hollywood. But, uh, and with obviously the top of the line engineers, but however and whatever Richie did, uh, the sound had so much more impact to me, emotional impact. That's right when I realized that the sound could have a big difference in how you perceive the music. And it was literally so such an instantaneous thing that I pointed at all the equipment and said, can you teach me how to do this? And he said, no, I'm teaching Cooper here. Go out and do another take. But that was the moment. So I went off on my own, found a, you know, a cheap studio to, to sweep the floors and learn how to do, you know, get the basics down. And uh, came across a guy named Toby Foster, who was great, uh, engineer and great design engineer and uh, was working at a, another studio, a good studio in uh, in town. And uh, I, I would go to him every day after school. I, by now I'm back. I wasted two and a half years, quit college at, at right away uh, when we got signed to DECA uh, and spent two and a half years chasing the band. Uh, and then so now I was back in college and every day after school, I would drive to the studio and he would just answer questions as, as long as he could take it. And so, and because of uh, my, my, all of my aptitude was in math and science. In fact, when I started Cal Poly, it was in aerospace. Um, and uh, what were that, where the left brain met the right brain, um, re- the whole engineering thing came extremely quickly to me so quickly that 
less than three years after that aha moment at Podlers, uh, I spent two months doing my best and finally did talking, talking him into letting me uh, try something, you know, in his studio. And uh, I, he finally said, all right, there's a demo tomorrow. Go and come and do that. So I went, I did the demo. I said, how did, what did the producer say? He said, you did great. I said, okay, what now? He said, come tomorrow, do another one. There's a demo in the morning. Okay, I did that one. How did they say? They said, you did great also. What's next? He said, come tomorrow night and record Three Dog Night. I went, okay, Boy. what? <laughs> now at that point in time, uh, he wasn't producing them. A guy named Gabriel Meckler was producing them. Uh, he was, Gabriel was Richie's biggest client. He had recorded the first Three Dog Night album for Gabriel and the first Steppenwolf album. And why in the world he would throw a kid in with his biggest client? I mean, if I had fallen on my face, he could have lost his biggest client. I, it just seems ludicrous to me. But I went in that night with the guys and uh, nervous as all get out and uh, cut a track with him and everything seemed to go fine. I called Richie the next morning. I said, what did Gabriel say? He said, everything went great. So come back tonight. Okay. So I went a second night. I cut a second track. And the third night, same thing, except a couple of hours into the session, they asked for something, an effect on the guitar that Richie had undoubtedly gotten for them being the, he's a phenomenal guitarist, as I mentioned, uh, had obviously done for them in the previous recorded previous album, the previous recordings of this album. And so I had to call Richie and he and Bill came down and, and took over recording uh, the tracks, but uh, I did do more overdubs with them. But yeah, I, it was literally thrown into the deep end of the pool and I managed to swim. Wow, I listen to their music now, and I'm—I just—I love them more now than I did when they had hits. Well, it's three lead vocalists yeah. singing not their songs, but the best songs that were written. Oh yeah. Time. So they used Paul Williams and. I was in the Navy driving back in my brand new Volkswagen '72 Super Beetle, and when the Randy Newman song "Mama Told Me Not to Come" came on oh, yeah. Three Dog Night, I pulled off to the side of the road to listen to it. I was so blown away because I was a big Randy Newman fan. I said, "I can't believe this pop band is covering Randy Newman," and it was—it changed my opinion about them. Their 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 vocals were pristine, really amazing. And that and those songs, by the way, are in almost every case is due to the great ears of Richie Podler, who, of course, it was known that they didn't do much writing, the group. So all the publishers would bring their songs. So he went through hundreds of songs, maybe thousands, who knows, oh. but hundreds and hundreds of songs to pick all the ones and especially the big hits. It's all Richie. That's wow. a secret. Could you tell your Gladys Knight story? I think it was neither one of us. The first hit, no, it wasn't the first hit. Well, they, one of my earliest, earliest hits that I mixed was a group called the free movement and the song was called i found someone of my own right by the free movement and that and was a one-hit wonder group right it was a one-hit wonder and uh very frustrating for me i mean i recorded and mixed it and the, the recording wasn't fun because let's just say they weren't the best singers let's just put it that way but the producer was a guy named joe porter and it was a big hit uh and so uh you know the record business like the film business rewards you for for your successes. So uh, he was doing some new acts and stuff. And I had done a couple of things with him. He did a rare earth album that I mixed. And, uh, and so he said, I've done some songs with Gladys Knight. And so I, uh, oh, great. He asked me to mix them. So I went in the studio and I'm mixing it. And the first thing was, I noticed that here was 
here was a track called on the legend. We always have a legend that has whatever, <clears throat> what's on individual tracks. And uh, the, uh, the legend said pips, but then there was another one that said girls. And indeed, what, when, it, when he came to the studio to hear the mix, I asked him about that. And he said he had so much trouble getting the pips to sing in tune that he had doubled the, uh, hmm. the pips with these background and he used girls instead of guys. And that's another one that if you listen, if you listen now closely to that, uh, you, you'll hear it. You can hear it. But didn't they put especially, that song on? They put that song on a shelf, and they didn't release it. They also didn't credit you at Motown, right? Yeah, that was yeah a couple of times. Rare Earth either, and uh, Diane Carroll. I did an album with Diane Carroll. I didn't get credit for. But yeah, I, I I mixed the song, and you know, I with I just knew it was a smash. And she had not had a record out in a while, and so I thought, well, this is going to bring her back. And instead, they shelved it, and I couldn't believe it that they shelved it. And uh, and I don't know if that's I've still to this day, sadly, never met Gladys. And I sure hope I get to because I've got to ask her if the fact that they uh, that they had not wanted to put that out. It was part of the reason she went to Buddha because she went to Buddha right after that. And and now the thing is, that song is actually a country song. Uh, neither one of us. And um written by a guy that just passed away here in Nashville, Jim Weatherly, an excellent songwriter. He and, also wrote uh, Midnight Train to Georgia, right? That was, yeah, that and, was and the, she went on a couple more. That was just more. the magic of those. Those two songs were country songs, and she made them the most soulful R&B releases of all time. Right, and that, that, that just goes to show you. But, you know, it, is that what hung Motown up, why they didn't want to release it? We'll never know. But as soon as she made the, uh, as soon as she left and was making the deal with Buddha, they released it uh as a single so and it brought her back in a big way now you have a, a characteristic that that i find in in successful people that well just call pluck and but i want you to put it in your own words in terms of advice for young people pursuing something that seems almost unattainable and then a really tricky you know industry to navigate you know because you, you just kept asking for opportunities and you weren't shy about it you knew that if somebody would give you those opportunities that you'd be able to succeed but how would you frame that in terms of advice for young people yeah it's funny you know now when i i'll speak to uh you know schools uh kids in school that are learning music recording whatever and and i sit there and uh, when i first started doing it quite a few years ago as the record business was leaving us the way it has left us, you know, where the opportunities are just so much fewer than they ever were. Uh, I looked at it when I was starting out that it was like, uh, it was like a pyramid with slippery sides. And how am I going to, you know, get inch my way up these things <laughs> if I want to try to get to the top. And it, it now had <laughs> about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it became it's a pyramid, but it goes up about halfway Then it's a flat top with a flagpole. And you know what, <laughs> What can you say? You know, the opportunities are just not there the, the, the way they were. So when I talk to the kids, I, I, I tell them basically that story. And I say, you know, if you've got it, if, you, if you've got it in your blood, you got to go after it. The good news is you're young. If it doesn't work out, you know, you can back up and do something else. But if you really believe that you've, you've that you've got it, uh, go for it. And you, you just you don't pass up any opportunity and realize that you're going to have to work really hard 
to to get a to get a, a, a you know to be a cut above the fray, and so that that that's all I know know to tell them. There's no greater example of the competitive nature of the recording industry than the one you describe about the recording of Rock and Roll Heaven that ended up being a comeback hit for the Righteous Brothers, but it almost wasn't a Righteous Brothers song. It was almost, talk about that whole scenario and how close that came to not being a Righteous Brothers song. <laughs> Minutes. Yeah. yeah. How close it came to being my hit, yeah. which is what it should have been, darn it. Okay. Yeah, so um, uh, I was working, uh, one of the acts that had been presented to me when I was at, uh, to produce at CBS uh, the lead singer was a guy named uh, Denny Carell, and I uh, I passed on producing the act. Well, several years later, he got a hold of me and said, "You know, I I I really liked you when we met you a few years ago. Would you? Can I meet with you?" I said, "Sure." So he came, and he played me several of his songs, and there was one or two that were pretty good. But then he said, "You know, a publisher gave me a song, and all he did was he sang what he could remember of the chorus." And it was, if you believe in forever, then life is just a one-night stand. If there's a rock and roll heaven, you know they've got a hell of a band. And a couple of luminaries had just died. And uh, so I found out who the songwriter was, and I went to him, and, and I said, you know, this song could be a hit. It had been released a couple of years earlier by the co-writer, uh, and, it, it, and uh, it wasn't a hit. It wasn't a big hit. I said, but, you know, if you rewrite the lyrics uh, for the, to take into account the two that have just died, I think it could be a smash. And he said, that's a great idea. So he wrote the lyrics, rewrote the lyrics. I worked with him on it, kind of honed it down, got it. And then I went in the studio and, and with Denny and some musicians and cut the song and, and put it together. And I was, I was very happy with it. And uh i i had done i had done work for a, a couple of different people so i went there was a new a and m uh, imprint by two guys two promotion guys barry Gro barry gross and marty cups and i went to them and uh played them the song and they said oh this is a smash we'll make a deal on this and then i called i said well hold on now guys uh, then i called my friend richard perry who said, you know, why don't you go see the head of Capitol after Ringo's album? You know, he, he'll take a meeting with you because I'm still pretty young at, at all this. And so I went in with, with him and um, I played him the song. And he also said, oh my gosh, this is a smash. Can I play it again? I said, sure. I, he played it again. And he said, um, I want to keep it overnight, but I think we can make a deal. And I said, okay, great. And as I walked out of the office, I met a guy outside that I had met before, a publisher who I'd met before, who said, boy, that sounded great through the wall, Bill. And I went, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. And uh, so that was that. So then uh, um, two days later, uh, the, the Alan O'Day, the songwriter, called me and said, Bill, hurry up and make a deal for Denny's record, because Lambert and Potter just called for the new lyrics on the song. And I went, oh, really? Okay, okay. So I, I called, uh, I, I started to call, and I'll never forget it was that we still had dial phones. And I dialed the number, I dialed the number for Capital to make a deal on the song. And I, I got to the last number, and I, my finger froze in the dial because I went, wait a minute, how did anybody know there was new lyrics on this song? Only Alan O'Day and I and Denny Carell, they were the only three people that knew. 
except for that publisher that was in the outer office. And I let go of the, I let go of the dial and it went back and I got Al on the phone and I said, you know, what do you think? You want to make a deal? And he said, I'll, I'm going out of town for the weekend, but you know, we can do it on Monday. And I went, oh, oh okay. And I called the other two guys and said, make it, let's do the deal fast now. And I told them, I told them about it. I told them what had happened. And I said, so, you know, he's going to, they're going to cut it with somebody quickly. And then I found out what it was because uh, uh, one of the guys, Marty Cups, was good friends with Lambert and Cups. They had promoted all their records at ABC, Lambert and Potter's records that they wrote and produced. Gross and Cups were the promotion people years earlier. So he said, we're good friends, called him up and he said, listen, let's not get in a bidding war on this. We're going to release this, you know, Denny's record. Let's not, let's not get into a record war. And instead they sped everything up. They, they signed the contracts immediately. They, they happened to call the studio that I worked in all the time. So I learned about that. They went in the studio on, uh, I don't remember the exact days, but it was a, uh, oh, it was, it was, it was a, a Thursday Thursday, they cut the track. Friday, they put the vocals and horns and strings on it. They mixed it on over the weekend, and they had records at radio at, on Thursday. I mean, they they weren't about to not win. And as fast as we moved at A and M, Gross and Cups, you know, we 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 didn't get there at that time. But it, what difference would it have made anyway? Because this was a Righteous Brothers revival. I mean, it was going to bring them back, and as opposed to Denny Carell that nobody had ever heard of. Um, but your thought was that it wasn't even the right pick for a Righteous Brothers reunion. It was more of a yeah, you know, I mean, specialty uh, record to me. My, you know, there's a thing in the business we've we've heard that that's a record, that's a career making record, a single that is such a big thing that it's you know, uh, I, I I suppose Sultans of Swing could be one. I mean, everybody when they heard that between that guitar playing and his voice and everything was like, whoa, what's happening here? There's also a thing called a, a career-breaking record, and what you know. And I think you know when you consider the body of work of singles that those guys had, um, that this, which is basically a, a pop song, a, you know, kind of almost a you know, a, a, it, it's it's just a, a playful kind of song uh, that that it's not anywhere near in the league of those other songs. And funny enough, I read a review, I mean, not a review, but an interview with Bill Medley, uh, you know, years later that where he basically said, you know, um, nobody was ever going to, I think the quote was something like, nobody's ever going to come to hear us sing rock and roll heaven uh, wow. kind of thing. So whatever. Wow. So who do you feel like was the person that really betrayed you? Was it the guy in the outer office who overheard it? It was in tandem, to be honest, because they... His, I didn't tell you that his brother was one of the two guys that, that, that did the producing. The, the guy in the, in the outer office was the publisher, but his brother is the, the famous producer, Gross and Cup, I mean, uh, Lambert and Potter. And, and funny enough, their deal was where? At Capitol. Yeah. So the, the Righteous Brothers were basically signed to Capitol. Wow. So you're in Nashville now where I, 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 I think the majority of the recording industry seems to have migrated to. Are you working on anything right now? Um, yeah, I'm working on a couple of things right now. I got, uh, and what's funny, yeah, when I, when I moved here, um, and that was the big impetus for it, because 
you know, they're by golly, they're still recording in studios as bands and whatnot, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, and, uh, you know, I love I, you know, my dream is to fall over dead on the console. I, you know, that's <laughs> it's going to be a group of musicians and I'm going to go, guys, I'm pretty sure the B flat and the second second ver boom <laughs> no. gone uh so that was a good you know, rehearsal I, you were I wanna, yeah i don't want to do that at home i want to do that in the studio so i yeah i've been and so i've been thrilled i've been since i've been here i've i've done two great albums two of the best albums i've worked on in 15 years one of them just came out it's on a small label and i'm afraid it's not going to get the attention that it deserves it's masterful and the other one is with a guy named Michael Feinstein, and it's Ooh, a oh, of course. phenomenal album, a uh, very different album. It's, it's uh, you know, I, if you're not familiar with, with Michael, he's like, uh, he's a piano player, singer, but he's like the foremost authority on the Great American Songbook, oh, yeah. not only from a knowledge standpoint, which is just ridiculous, stupid what he knows, but he's, he has, the, he's the archivist for the George Gershwin family. Exactly. It's his... His house, he showed me, and that's not all of it, but I mean, it's he's got the this insane collection of everything to do with the music of that era. And his album, the album he wanted to do is Gershwin songs done with country artists as partners, duet album. Oh, wow. And that's it was so like, cool. you know, the old RCA dog nipper. Yeah. You know, that's what people do when I tell them what that, what that album oh, is. I see and it it's working. like, yeah. And, but what happened is, uh, the producer, a guy named Kyle Lenning here, uh, he called Michael and said, I got a crazy idea. What do you think if we don't have any piano on it? And of course, Michael plays piano. And lo and behold, all of those songs were written on piano. And Michael loved the idea. So uh, they, we put a great group of acoustical instruments with accordion and fiddle and kind of like... Uh, uh, a union station, if you're familiar with that group, mm -hmm. Alison Krauss's old group, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of mu musicians and upright bass, all these acoustical instruments with those gorgeous chord changes and the songs. And it's, it's quite an album. So who are very, some of the artists good. that will enjoy on the, on this album? <laughs> Alison Krauss, because we had to wait a year to get her, ah. uh, Dolly Parton, wow. uh, uh, Mandy Barnett, who, uh, you probably don't know. And I think it's in the book. I, I said, uh, under superlatives, uh, one of the best artists, not enough people know about one of the best singers I've ever put a microphone in front of. And she indeed is the only country album I ever produced was 25 years ago when she was a kid. And the other album, the great album that I've done since I've been here that just came out is, um, the songs from Billie Holiday's, uh, in satin album, these torch songs and done with, an old school arranger. How old school? Sammy Nestico was 95 when he did the arrangements two wow. years ago. He has ah. since departed the earth. Okay. But those songs with a, I did cut it here in Nashville with a live 60 piece orchestra and this songbird singing. And it is, it is just an absolutely gorgeous album. It's called Every Star Above. And I can't recommend it highly enough for anyone that loves that. Has it been released yet? Just yeah. came out. Mm. All right. Well, we will look for those and uh, we'll include them in our show notes so that you can find them at home. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention, Bill? Where can people find you online? And what else would you love for them to be able to find and yeah, enjoy? Yeah, just, just that, like I, I think I already said it well enough, the book is just for anyone that uh, 
that loves music and wants to know some of the behind the scenes stuff from uh, the, the uh, incredible number of artists that I've worked with. It's a great title. Uh, Chairman at the board is yeah. one of the great titles of all time. It really is good. Yeah. And uh, a friend of mine, friend of mine came up with that and, uh, and then the subtitle recording the soundtrack of a generation was one of the alternate titles and the publisher just put them together and uh the the, the fun thing to know is that uh over a third of the book was cut out in the editing process and someone was uh, i was bemoaning that fact to a friend of mine and he said why don't you just get a website and put uh put in the book to go to the website and put in this key and you'll get go back and read all the deleted scenes as it were so that's what we've done at BillSchnee.com. Yeah, it's really so, fun because you get to the end of the book and then, then there's a secret password that gets you into the, the catacombs of the book. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that's, yeah, so that's it. And uh, that's also how anyone that wants to get a hold of me, there's a contact uh, on there where you just, if you want to write to me and anything. Submit your question to Bill. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Bill, we just enjoyed this. We could have made this go for another hour. You had such an amazing uh, arc of life and career and really wonderful really fun talking to you thank you bill and here come our closing credits but first fritz tell people where they can uh, give us a review and and help others find well out. if you enjoyed this episode of media path it would help us to be more discoverable by potential new listeners if you leave us a quick review on apple podcasts and if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. You may even find us binge-worthy. Recent episodes include Gary Puckett, The Cow Sills, Henry Winkler, Keith Morrison, Bill Moomy, Tony Dow, uh, Diane Warren, uh, Richard Sturman of the Oak Ridge Boys, Mark Summers, the Livingston Brothers from can My I just, Three... Can I just interject, Fritz, to say we have two of the people from... Bill's story, Dennis Lambert and Bill Medley. Bill Medley. And I did. I wanted to say that for the end because Bill had some really nasty things to say about you and he got a great deal of satisfaction swiping that song right out of your paws. That's not true. I, we found him to be very, very comfortable. He's going back on the road. He's got like a, he's got a, a residency right in Las Vegas with his new partner that took oh, really? uh, Bobby Hatfield's place. Newly so knighted righteous brother. Yeah, right. Anyway. I wonder if they'll do rock and roll heaven. <laughs> Well, nobody will. will show up just for that song. <laughs> Thank you for spending an hour with us, and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or to recommend us to a friend. Thank you so much. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast, where you can subscribe. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Bill Schnee. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker, here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. That was spectacular, Bill. Really wonderful.